is now we have spent the time up to this period analyzing exactly where we are in the thought forms of our generation and how we have gotten there using 1964 at Berkeley as a pivot but seeing that the roots of 1964 in Berkeley reach back for hundreds of years and that it didn't come out of nowhere but quite the contrary there was a real unity of the thought form and it was the thought forms that brought forth the revolution in 1964 in Berkeley and not just something that just happened it just didn't come out of nowhere now we must realize to understand coming back again to the Berkeley revolution in 1964 uh, that the things we have been talking about in our whole long our whole long structure of, of, of the development of these kinds of thought that these have been uh, these have been taught in all the disciplines as I've marked my line of despair in philosophy in the arts in music in general culture and the mass media and in theology uh, that they have been taught for three or four generations in our universities as though they were absolute truth this was the only thing that was put forth my own observation is of why many many people who lose quote unlo- lose their faith unquote in university or even go to a good theological school and then go to Germany and work there and suddenly are overwhelmed and come back uh, infiltrated with modern theological thinking my own observation is that very rarely does this turn upon a single question being raised that cannot be answered and I just I have all kinds of people asking my advice about education and one thing I always say to them well you can take your PhD in German University providing providing you have the courage to leave if the questions the unanswered questions get too great because what I see is that there's no no one question usually or ten questions or a hundred questions that suddenly are unanswered but that they're suddenly surrounded by a huge wave of things that are not settled of unanswered questions that could be answered if they had the person to help them at the right moment who could answer the question and it gets like a big wave and it just breaks on their head because what they've been given in university is that everything else is unthinkable I think this is a good term and I would ask you to remember it if you're going on to further studies and that is you're surrounded you're surrounded by an environment where everything except the uniformity of natural causes in the closed system is considered as an unthinkable thought and Christianity is very very often rejected not because not because of some unanswered questions but just simply because people are infiltrated with the concept that it's unthinkable now we have been we had this in our American universities for three or four generations not only American universities but we're talking about Berkeley and it reached not only in the universities but all the way down into the children's books it was on every side you see you went into the uh, you went into the art museum you saw it if you read a philosophy book of course you had it if you uh, listened to modern music you had it uh, if you went to the uh, if you listened read your poetry the modern poetry you had it if you read your mass media you had it if you went to church you were preached it and, and it became an all-pervasive monolithic concept, a consensus. And it had been this for a long time. As a matter of fact, it went all the way down to children's books. One of the per- most pernicious uh, infiltration of pure evolution that I had ever seen was in, in a, a little golden book, slanted for children for two and three. And it was, uh, the whole thing is there. And we had given this and given it. And you must understand, some of us lived in pockets where we didn't get it with such force. But in the general culture, we have been getting it with tremendous overwhelming force for three or four generations. And suddenly at a certain place, uh, suddenly at a certain place, 
uh, the youngsters took it out into the street. And I don't think there's any other way to understand the Berkeley Revolution or any way to meet it or any way to preach the gospel into it. It's just simply that the thing had become a monolithic culture and it had been this way for two or three generations and the people who had taught it originally had been able to teach it abstractly because they still lived in the memory of the Christian culture. It's interesting if you read B.F., if you listen to B.F. Skinner, he makes it plain uh, that his own moral setting is still the memory of the Christian culture, what he was taught as a child. So he can, he can teach this and live this. But the people who follow him will not have one, and they will live what they are, they live, live, live what they are taught. There was a professor in one of his great girls schools, great girls colleges, for a long time that taught free love. Uh, and he taught free love in his classes. He was an older man. But he himself was married and lived in the old Christian consensus of a, of a home life. But you know, the girls would just practice the free love. And then the unit then the girls' college would be surprised, and for a long while they expelled them as soon as they became pregnant. So what you have is a, you have, you had tension of the people teaching something that they didn't live. But it was surrounding them, it was surrounding them. And this was, uh, this boiled, the youngsters gradually saw that what it resulted in was that there was no ultimate meaning for man. And there was no ultimate meaning for education. And there were no fixed values. So what had been taught as an abstraction became a reality. And everybody should have known that some generation would have begun to act upon it. And it just happened to be that the thing came to its climax in 1964. I think all the way back from the thing Leonardo da Vinci wrestled with, all the way through the Enlightenment, it suddenly reached its peak, and it poured out, it poured out in the street. The man who perhaps has given a better position concerning where all this leads than anybody else was Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was very, very Nietzsche saw something. Nietzsche saw that when he said, God is dead, and he was the first modern man to say in the modern way, God is dead, which means God never existed. When he said God is dead, he saw something, and that is, if God is dead, everything for which God gives an answer is dead. And that's awesome. And the often many even of our liberal theologians, they don't understand this. They think they can say God is dead, and it will make no appreciable difference. But Nietzsche was bright enough to see that it would make a difference. And I'm thoroughly convinced about Nietzsche that when he came to Switzerland and he went insane, that it wasn't just because he had a, uh, had a sexual disease, but it was because, because he really understood philosophically what he had said. There was only one answer to it, and that was total insanity. In the interim, he became a cynic. In the, he was, and he's known most of the word that's connected with Nietzsche is the word cynicism. And what he saw is that if you have no ultimate values, it's only going back to the same thing again, you see, uh, that Plato would have put forth. If you had no ultimate values that gave any meaning to anything, all you could do is make what Nietzsche called systems, but which we in the 20th century would call game plans. And game plans is a good word to have in your vocabulary here. Uh, and all you could do is make a system. In other words, you could lay out arbitrarily some interest in life and so concentrate upon that interest that you wouldn't think of the big problem. And this really is a profound insight because that's exactly what people do. Exactly what people do. And his own game plan, his own system at the end was a yay saying rather than nay saying, which is the most romantic, optimistic game plan you can imagine. That though your mind tells you you should say no to life because it's meaningless and purposeless and it has no meaning whatsoever, Yet, nevertheless, by an act of the will, you would say yes to life. Yea saying rather than nay saying was Nietzsche's conclusion. 
Uh, but as he said this, he's right in that people can make, make game plans. And these game plans can be anything. It can be the skier going downhill and spending a whole lifetime just to lob off one-tenth of a second of his downhill run. And if you if you among the very wealthy who have no meaning in life, you find that many of them pick just such things. Their yachting will be their game plan to sail their boat a little better. But you see, Nietzsche and the men who followed him saw that it wouldn't be only something as superficial as sailing your yacht or skiing downhill. It could be something that sounded very great, like the scientist who was pursuing some small point. And yet he pursued this small point deliberately blind to all the bigger problems of life. I was lecturing one time in England, and uh, uh, speaking of science, and a young man stood up who was attending one of the great universities in England, and said, sir, but you don't understand that the scientists with whom I work, and he was a man who was well advanced in science, are the, are the most bourgeois people you can imagine, in the sense that they deliberately work with small areas of science and never ask the big questions. Well, this would be a game plan which would be just as frivolous in reality and just as wrecking uh, as, the, as the, the playboy who only wants to find one more blonde to sleep with. In other words, there's no real difference in the, in the structure. It's just that it takes a different form. Now, it's not only this, but men who have been perceptive have seen pursuing, quote, the greatest good for the greatest number. In reality, is also a game plan or a system if there is no absolute meaning to life. If there's no real values in life, then pursuing the greatest good for the greatest number is just as much a game plan as is, as is trying to lob one more second off out of your downhill run. Nietzsche really spelled out the rules of the game. And the university professors taught their destructive position that there's no fixed values and that everything is in flux. So it wasn't going to result in anything. But in reality, what I would call, what you can call the leaven of Nietzsche, not in the sense that people really were following Nietzsche, but just the logical conclusions of Nietzsche, after a few years, became apparent not only, not only to the great brain of Nietzsche, but it became apparent in an analyzed or an unanalyzed form, depending how bright they were, to the kids. They have taught that, taught there was no ultimate meaning of anything, and this means there's no ultimate meaning to education. Education becomes nonsense. Why bother? And as I said before, the only answers they were given were, su were really superficial answers. And that is, you go to school and you make money in order to, um, or you go to school and you get good grades in order to make more money. You go to, you work like mad, you work like a slave, you work in a system that is brainless, but you give yourself to it without reservation in order that you can get in Harvard rather than a lesser school. And for what reason? Well, because statistically it can be proven that the graduates of Harvard make more money. But if it's all inside a game plan, what in the world difference does it make? And then you come along and you say, think of the next generation. You want to have money enough to send them to become a, a physician in, the, in, the, uh, in one of the great medical schools. And that costs something like $50,000 now. So you've got to work like mad in order that your child can, can become a physician and you can pay the $50,000 for his education. But gradually the wheels went around on these kids' heads and they said, this really is stupid. And their bourgeois parents did not know that it was stupid. Remember what I said, there's nothing wrong with the middle class. The middle class comes out of the Reformation. The weakness of the middle class is the middle class, once it is separated from the reasons for that which gave it its values. And I would just say, at this point, at Berkeley 1964, not in their solutions, 
But in their analysis of the current situation, I think the kids were right. And I think that's why I can work with them, is I really, really feel an affinity. I feel an affinity that if, it, if it's only this, if it's only this, and it's only what the professors were teaching them, not only in physics, not only in philosophy, but in sociology, in psychology, in everywhere they turn, they got the same sort of thing in varying degrees. If that's true, and you're only living in these game plans, then let's drop out. Well, you must see the kids had a real reason coming back from all these hundreds of years that I've developed so carefully in these lectures. More carefully, perhaps, than I've ever developed them in a series of lectures. You must see that the youngsters were right. And this is what, this is the reason we must have compassion. That in the basis of what they were taught, they were right. You must see that Proust comes in here, the French writer Proust. Proust's great emphasis is our alienation from the universe. The dust of death is on everything because everybody's going to die and there's nothing else but death. So you stand completely alienated from the universe. The universe is your is is impersonal and it's meaningless. So these thoughts came down, and as I say, suddenly everybody was surprised because the kids took it out into the streets. But why should anybody be surprised that the youngsters took it out in the streets when it's exactly what they've been taught by the parents, by everybody else, for a couple generations? The only stupid people I think in this are the people who were surprised that it was taken out into the streets including ourselves, we should have made projections and known what was coming. Because it has to be this way. Mathematically, it has to be this way, as I see it. So what you find is that the youngsters took it out in the streets and the professors cheered. And the professors were so happy when the, children, when the young people were battering against the administration of the colleges. And then by Columbia, a new thing happened. The youngsters turned against the professors. And they began to burn the professors' papers. And then the professor stopped cheering. <laughs> but you see, but you, there's a little dilemma here. And the little dilemma is that the professors themselves had no categories as to why one was right and the other was wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? The categories were destroyed. Because if you would take, if you take this, this, this uh, situation which has been, which has been developed, and you have your upper and lower story, down here you must see, down here you must see, uh, that man is a machine, and he's meaningless. Man is a machine, and he's meaningless. He is only the little computer being controlled by the larger computer of the university. And when the youngsters said, I'm being treated like IBM cards, it's not only because there are now 40,000 students in a university which are too many to handle, personally. It's because the philosophy of the people who are controlling the university really saw them as IBM cards. The 40,000 bit wouldn't have had to have had the same result if people really thought of other people as human. It comes in every field. The, the medical man treats his, per, treats his patient like a case. The psychologist treats his patient like a case. He, makes, he sees them as IBM cards, and he treats them as IBM cards. And what the youngsters saw is that they were small computers in this basis of what they had been taught, controlled by the bigger computer of the university, and back of that stood the bigger computer of society. And let me just say that they're not wrong in any of this. That's exactly, exactly what, what we're being taught, that down here, man is only a machine. It's a small computer controlling, being controlled by the bigger computer, which is controlled by the bigger computer, and the whole thing is a computer. And, of course, the conclusion of this was B.F. Skinner, in Beyond Freedom and Dignity. This was a climax for this kind of a presentation. 
Now, but down here then, if man in the area of reason was only a machine, what would be up here in the area of non-reason, which had become the area of hope? Well, the dilemma is that because there's no reason, there's no categories up here. And that, that really I grind into your bones. By categories, you mean the distinction between this and that. There's no categories in up, upstairs. Downstairs, man is a machine, but there's categories because there's mathematics. But upstairs, there's no categories, no moral categories, no moral categories. I don't mean that, but you can say this is against that statistically. But there's no moral categories, no meaning down here. There's mathematical categories, and only mathematical categories. Up here, however, because you're separated from reason, there's no categories at all. Now, this is the place where the cinema can teach us something, and where we who allowed ourselves to not understand the cinema and often not even re read the reviews in the, in the magazines, really have suffered a loss. Because it was the cinema who picked this up. The chairs of philosophy are not support important points of influence at them uh, any longer. Because you have two anti-philosophies. You have a linguistic analysis, and you have a, uh, a uh, and you have um, uh, existentialism. And existentialism deals with a big question, but it has no answers. And on the other hand, linguistic analysis never gets to the big question. What you're left with is a language. So what you have is in linguistic analysis following Wittgenstein and onward, what you have is language not leading to values. They often say language will not lead to values. It became very obvious that you get into a further step, and that is language does not lead to values, but neither does language lead to facts. Language only leads to language. So if you're interested in philosophy, this is a good thing to get in your notes. That you're, the, that you had two, you have two anti-philosophy. Existentialism and linguistic analysis. And linguistic analysis does not get to the big questions. And they found this out. They thought they were optimistic at first and thought it would, but it didn't. All you get is more and more, as I say, language leading to language. So your chairs of philosophy are not the ones that are giving the influence in the world. The philosophy is no longer being spread so much by philosophy. The philosophy is being controlled by the other forms of the discipline. And one of the Harvard professors said that, and quite properly, more philosophy has been uh, taught in America uh, since, in 19, uh, since 1900 by the novel than all the chairs of philosophy put together. And he's absolutely right. The, the battles of philosophy have been fought in rock music. This is where they're fought. The battles of philosophy have been fought in have been fought in the novel. I've often said that if I were another life to live, and my job, I felt my calling was to uh, to smuggle Christianity into a big university, uh, I would teach literature. It's my, it would be my choice. I would I wouldn't teach philosophy. I would teach literature because the literature today deals with the philosophic questions, and you can use it as a tool in reverse if you know how. Uh, but the, it, for the mass of people, it came through the mass media and it came through the cinema. And we must not, we must not minimize the influence of the cinema. And again, you must remember, again, you must remember that you can be influenced by these things without analyzing them. And there, came, there has come forth a string of philosophic films, what would be known as the good films as opposed to the bad films. The bad films, as I'm not using moral terms now or Christian terms, but the way it's looked at by the reviewers, 
Uh, the good, the bad films would be merely the escapist films, the entertainment films. The good films would be the philosophic films. And the first of the great philosophic films was the last year at Marenbach. It was a brand new kind of film. A film that dealt with a deep philosophic question. And then you came through a whole string of philosophic films. And they're still being produced. And certain directors, such as Fellini and Bergman, have given their lives to produce philosophic films. And these have really been important. They've really been important. Now then, what did they teach? Well, you can think of some of the great films. To I just choose a few to make an emphasis. Uh, and the one I think which is outstanding is Antonioni's Blow Up. I think Blow Up was crucial. Blow Up was crucial. To really understand what the people were being fed, you must you had to understand Blow Up. And in Blow Up, in Blow Up, he had he advertised it. Antonioni advertised his film as murder without guilt, love without meaning. And the whole film was committed to this. And he was a very... These men are clever. They're brilliant as any of the ancient philosophers. They're really brilliant. And they know how to use their medium. So he turned the observer into merely a camera's eye. That's all it was, was a camera's eye. Click, click, click. In other words, there's no continuity to the thing. There's nothing that has any meaning to it or value to it. The only thing is you just take a, a, ser- a series of snapshots of life. Uh, just click, click, click. That's all. And in it, in it, there was the big emphasis... Uh, the first, on the first hand, that there's no moral values, there's murder without guilt, but then you see it's more profound and more devastating, it's love without meaning, so there's no human category. So Antonioni put the death note in his film to two sets of categories, moral and human. There was no human category after when he was done. As a matter of fact, those of you who saw the, the, the blow up, you remember the last shot which was certainly brilliantly executed, and that is the anti-hero. There was no hero in it. There's no heroes in any of these films. Heroes don't exist. Hero, the hero is dead. The hero was related in a uh, man in non-Christian mind. The hero is related uh, to back there somewhere uh, where you had the bohemian bo- bohemian life. Remember? And my tracing from, go- from Jean-Jacques Rousseau to Gauguin to the bohemian life to the hippie. These people were heroes. They were heroes because they were breaking the taboos. Uh, in the literature and in every other form and in their life form. But there's no heroes now. You only have anti-heroes because there's no meaning to being a hero. So even the hero of the, of the Bohemian life is quite dead. Really does. So what you had was the anti-hero and the anti-hero at the end of the film uh, came into a place and he saw clowns playing tennis without a ball. A very profound concept. Very profound concept. And you could tell they were expert players tennis players because if you, have, if you had any kinetic feel to the swing of their rackets if you played tennis yourself they played where the ball would bounce fast shot slow shot over the net and then finally one hit it too hard and you thought he's hitting it too hard and it went right obviously the ball which didn't exist went over the net and the anti hero follows it over with his eyes you saw where it lands goes down picks it up and throws it back and I didn't laugh I cried because he was saying exactly what modern man is there's just nothing to the game. And the next thing which he did profoundly was that he then made a reverse zoom shot. On the, and the hero, anti-hero was on the grass. And he got smaller and smaller and smaller. And for the last couple seconds of the film, there was no, hero, there was no man there. Nothing but grass. Now when you get a film like this, you must understand that a lot of people go to see it without realize, realizing it. But a lot of people do realize what it's saying 
And a lot of people who are who wouldn't analyze it are moved one quarter inch more in this direction in their attitude. Uh, the beginning with the last year of Marimbaugh, which was before blow up, and Fellini's Juliet of the Spirit, and Bergman's Hour of the Wolf took it further. Now Bergman Bergman is the is a clear philosopher. And Bergman made a series of film, films trying to trying to uh, build on existentialism, the optimistic side of existentialism. And he saw that at a certain place he failed, and so he made the film Silence. And when he made the film Silence, this was the end of his hope. And for those of you who have read Wittgenstein, you remember Wittgenstein's concept was silence. The silence in the universe, in the area of values. And uh, I was convinced, I was convinced when he made, when Bergman made the film Silence, he was saying exactly the same thing. The silence in the universe, even the hope of God in the concept of existentialist hope of God is dead. Quite finished. And I was fortunate I was lecturing at Harvard one time, and because people knew I was interested in communications, they dug out one of his films, uh, which had been a, a, a film in which he had been interviewed. And they... Um, they showed it and then we discussed it afterwards. It was very interesting. And Bergman himself explained the philosophic direction of his film and they showed clips all the way from his early film in which he did have Christ figures. And it got worse and worse and worse and worse until he had silence and um, until he made silence. And he himself said and what my analysis had been and that is that he had come to conclude there was only silence in the universe. Now what do you do when you decide there's only silence in the universe? Well, the next film you make is The Hour of the Wolf. And what's the hour of the wolf? Well, the hour of the wolf, the hour of the wolf is a film in which you can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy. So the last year of Marenbach, Juliet of the Spirit, The Hour of the Wolf, The Belle du Jour, many, many of these other films are an emphasis that in reality there's no category to tell the difference between reality and fantasy. So now you've taken a step further into a very black kind of damnation. And that is, there's not only that you can't stop, you see, if there's no categories in the moral values and there's no categories in the human values, there's no categories in the epistemological value uh, area either. And you can't tell the difference between reality and fantasy. And believe me, that's where people are living today. It has been made respectable in the philosophic field. It has been made respectable in the philosophic field uh, by, uh, by Karl Popper. Karl Popper has written some recent books in which he emphasizes that you cannot you cannot verify anything, you only falsify some things. Which leaves you in an area of uncertainty. You can never say this is it, this is the way it is, either in science or history. Michael Polanyi, who was the man who destroyed positivism so beautifully, and Michael Polanyi is one of the great thinkers, he's still living, the man I pray for. I wish I keep wishing I could meet Michael Polanyi. He's an old man now, though. But he was the man who, who put the final death note to, uh, to positivism. Uh, but when he was left, when he was done with his positivism, he was left with cynicism as to knowing. Never mind knowing what, you see. It isn't, that you, it isn't just that you don't know this, but you aren't sure that you can know. And this is my book, of course, the last two chapters, that he is there and he's not silent, which I think is probably the most important thing I've ever written. With the whole battle in the area of epistemology, and you, the, the people aren't sure. People aren't sure of the difference between reality and fantasy. So what you've done now, what you've done now, is to come along and you have arrived at a place 
you have arrived at a place wherein, in the area of reason, man is only a machine and they're only his they're only his mathematics. And on the other hand, up here, you have no categories. No categories at all. No categories in any area. No categories, most profoundly, no categories in the area of knowing. Epistemology died. <coughs> Epistemology deals with a problem of not only what you know, but how you know, and how you know you know, and how you're sure there's any correlation between what you think you know and what is this. That's epistemology. And in this area, in this area, there was a complete, uh, a, a, we've come to a completely dead end. Everybody ought to, uh, Plato could have told them this. Michelangelo could have told them. I mean, uh, Leonardo could have told them this is where it was going to come, unless somebody brought in an act of magic. And there is no act of, uh, act of magic in rationalism. Now, the next you see that the next thing you must understand is that all these things are related to origins. This is my next point. That the way it's all going to turn out, the fact that you, the fact that it turns out in this awful way, the fact that it turns out in this awful way, is uh, is absolutely a certainty that it will turn out this way if you begin with a certain origin. Everything begins from origin. If it, to be a thinker, you must learn to go back to the, what causes it and go back to the beginnings and see where things rest in the area of beginnings. And modern man had an impersonal beginning. This is where he's made, this is where he's, his, this is rationalism that has made his big, his big false step. The modern man is a man with an impersonal beginning. So he must explain everything that, he must explain everything there is on the basis of the impersonal plus time plus change. And don't think I just throw this in my book to sound learned or something. Because this really is the crux of the matter. If you begin with the impersonal, if you begin with the impersonal, then you must explain everything that exists on the basis of time plus change. And you have a very interesting factor in this, I think, and that is in the case of Pasteur. And Pasteur proved conclusively by sterilization. He proved conclusively that uh, spontaneous generation was impossible. Prior to Pasteur, everybody believed in spontaneous generation, that Wigglies came out of uh, farm water around the barn, that mice would be come from a haystack. And then what he proved was that by, by pasteurizing, the word pasture, pasteurizing these things, the spontaneous generation became impossible. So for a, for a short time, spontaneous generation was dropped. But what you must see is that the birth of modern evolution was merely the same thing put far back in time. So it was spontaneous generation, but long ago. So what can't be demonstrated to in the, now in the laboratory is taken as something which is accepted as acceptable concept if you just add enough time. So the whole, the whole area today, the whole thing, the whole hope is in time plus chance. That if you start give enough time, and now we, they're asking us up to this time, they're saying that they have, they feel that it's between eight and, eight and ten billion years, that we're back that far. Uh, that they, that you had a, that you have more time. So they try to explain everything there is, including man, on the basis of time plus chance. Time plus chance. So the modern man is, it has a basic, a basic thing. You can describe it as the uniformity of natural causes in the closed system, or you can describe it equally, and these are related, that it's the impersonal, he, is the, he believes in the impersonal plus time plus chance. That's all there is. Now, the impersonal plus time plus chance, the 
can come in various forms. It can come in the religions of the East. The religions of the East, Hinduism and Buddhism, beginning with, begin with an impersonal. So you'll have pantheism, pan-everythingism. But as I do like to point out, this is a loaded word, because especially for the, for the ears of the West. Because in the West, in the West, theism has a sense of personality with it. So by calling it pantheism, you have a connotation word of, of something that is not there by definition. By definition, in Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, there have been reformers in Hinduism that have tried to escape this, but nobody's managed to, I would say. That what you have is, uh, you end with an impersonal. So it's pantheism in the sense of pan-everythingism. And I would just make a suggestion to you, and that is in discussions about pantheism, in your discussions, uh, uh, when you're discussing with somebody and they're using the word pantheism, you always use the word pan-everythingism. Because curiously enough, it cuts the, it, it cuts the nerve of their argument, because their argument turns at the point of uh, a connotation. It turns at the point of a connotation. And if you just cut it, so when anybody ever talks to me about pantheism, I always immediately, from my side, start talking very gently and quietly about pan-everythingism. They, they may not dawn on them for a little while what's happened, but somewhere along the line, uh, there's a great difference. So what you have now is that the religions of the East are pantheistic and begin with the impersonal. The East begins with the impersonal. And because the East begins with the impersonal, it means that they have never developed a science. Very interesting thing. The whole science of the East is copied from the science of the West. The East never, and they discovered things, such as the Chinese discovering gunpowder, in the same way that the Greeks had some knowledge, and the Arabic the people, the Arabic people had some mathematics, but it was never put together in a unified, a unified area in the same way. And not only that, but in the East, the human being begin, takes, uh, becomes, becomes of little value. And all that is re related back to the fact that it's a pantheism, it's an impersonal beginning. But we must also recognize that the whole West is now committed to an impersonal beginning. It is the surrounding thing which surrounds you in a university. If you go, to the, uh, go into the biology class, it is assumed that there was an impersonal beginning. If you go into a psychology class or a sociology class, it is equally assumed that there was an impersonal beginning. Even if you go into history classes, it will be assumed that there was an impersonal beginning. So every door you knock on as you go into universities and as you read the intellectual literature of our generation, it, it always goes back to the assumption that there was an impersonal beginning on every side. Now, there's some problems concerning this. Some problems concerning this. And uh, one of the things which is very interesting is that the men in statistics are raising questions. The men in statistics are raising questions. And the, the man whose name is most outstanding is Murray, Murray Eden of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but he's not the only one. And we can do something now, you see, that, we are, uh, that couldn't have been done a few years ago. And that is now we can run a program of 8 billion years because we have high-speed computers. Previous to this, you couldn't have had enough mathematicians working enough years in order to produce the, the figures needed. But now we can do it. And Murray Eden has been playing with this thing uh, for several years, for a long time, of using his fastest computers to run a program. And it's a chance, a chance program. And the chance program is that beginning with any acceptable amount of time up to 8 billion years, what is the possibility of the present complexity of the universe being produced by chance? 
And so far, he says, the answer is absolute zero. And this is profound. In other words, it, 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 we're, we're seeing here an act of faith which is overwhelming. Now, he's not even talking about the personality of man. I'm not sure Murray Eden would be interested in the personality of man, actually, in his theory. He's just talking about the sheer complexity of the universe being produced by chance. And statistically, he says, and of course you can raise questions about his, about his uh, programming and so forth, and obviously the men who want to hold this view strongly do raise serious objections about his programming and so on. But it is interesting that here is a point, here is a point where, where, they, where some of these men themselves are raising their own kind of questions. And that is that you, there is, you cannot find enough acceptable time to come to any kind, of a, any kind of a hope that the complexity of the universe as we now know it was produced by, by chance. And yet that's their view. So what you must realize is that everything turns, everything that turns upon your beginning. Now if you listen carefully to Skinner yesterday, those of you who saw that movie, you will notice that he ended with only one value, and he ends with only one value in his book. And that is the value of the continuity of the species. And that's the only value that is left. But that's the only value that can be left in this area. It isn't that they have chosen this. There's nowhere else to go. Bertram Russell, at the end of his life, had only one value, and that was the continuity, biological continuity of the human race. Now, you can ask the question, which Skinner never answers, and that is, why is it worthwhile to keep the human race going if you have only a meaningless situation? Nobody gives you an answer for this. Skinner always dodges it, as he did yesterday. He always dodges it. But the great thinkers of our generation all end with this as being the only value. Beginning with the impersonal, plus time, plus chance, there is no intrinsic value to anything in the universe, and so therefore the only thing you can finally come up with is a value of the continuity of the human race. Now, this is not only Bertram Russell came up with this conclusion, and George Wall come up, came up with this conclusion of Harvard, Nobel Prize winner of Harvard. He's had more influence upon boys at Harvard probably than any other one professor. And his whole, I heard when I was hearing, listening to him lecture at Acapulco when I was lecturing there uh, to this group of non-Christians, uh, he, he was another one of the lectures, uh, when he got done, this was his only value. His value was the continuity of the human race. Why is this any value? Well, no reason, no reason. They, ca they could say, I think, and I think this is emotionally back of their choosing the value of the continuity of the human race, is that they don't believe there's a God, and they don't believe there are any angels, and they haven't proved at all by any means that there's any conscious life anywhere else in the universe. All the claims that there's conscious life anywhere else in the universe is only built on statistics. It's no, there's no proof of it. And consequently, I think emotionally, what they feel sad about and overwhelmed about and, and absolutely despondent about is the fact that if the human race goes out of existence, there'll be nobody in the whole universe to hear a bird sing and put any value on it or see a sunset. Modern man has come to this place that if there's no God, he doesn't believe there's a God, he doesn't believe there are angels, he isn't sure there's any life out there at all, there's no proof whatsoever. And consequently, if the bombs dropped today or the sun flared or something happened and the human race disappeared, never again would anyone really enjoy a sunset. That's a pretty, it's a deep, deep, deep catastrophe. And I think emotionally these men can't stand this. And I, I think again, it always goes back that they are made the image of God, whether they know it or not. They can't stand this. And not being able to stand this, therefore they put forth 
the, uh, the emotionally, the value of the continuity of the human race, when in reason there is no reason, there is no meaning to the continuity of the human race. There's no meaning. There's, it, the human race could go out of existence tomorrow, in the, in, in the basis of these men, and there would be no, uh, there would be no value impinged. No value would be challenged if the human race went out of existence, went out of existence uh, in this moment. Now, when, on the other hand, emotionally, you see, emotionally, something has been lost, would be lost, but it would be on the purely, uh, but it would be on the emotional side. And then I would conclude by saying that you must see, therefore, that it all turns upon the beginning. In other words, it, you will, where you come out in this will be the question of where you begin. This is exactly where it will turn out. So, therefore, it's the questions of beginning that involve, and I think it, I'm glad it falls on the day of prayer. Uh, my next lecture will deal with the Christian cosmogony. What is our cosmogony? And the cosmogony, cosmogony simply means the science of beginning. So what is our cosmogony? As opposed to the modern man's cosmogony, cosmogony, the impersonal beginning plus time plus chance, what is our cosmogony? And you, what we must see that in reality, in reality, how it's going to turn out depends exactly where we start.